The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Your God's Word from the Epistle to the Hebrews. Chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Let's pray together. Father, show us the majesty, the wonder of the great king that you've given to us, son of David and yet Lord of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that in these few moments as we reflect on how great he is as the eternal king, you will bring our hearts even further into submission to our great king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In these meditations, we've been looking at the series of Old Testament passages that the preacher to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, brings forward to substantiate, to support the claims that he made in the first four verses of this wonderful sermon letter. Uh, Claims that Jesus is the eternal son, the radiance of God's glory and the imprint of God's nature, creator and sustainer of the universe, and that Jesus is the messianic son, who came to earth in these last days, who made purification for sins and now subsequently has taken his throne at God's right hand in heaven, that he's the royal heir of all things and he has inherited the name above all names, the name far greater than the angels. And we've looked at the first triad, the first collection of three uh, Old Testament texts, two about the son, one about the angels, Uh, emphasizing the son's exaltation as the messianic son. And now we've begun to look at the second triad, the second set of three. A couple weeks ago we looked at uh, a quote from probably Psalm 97 or Deuteronomy 32 that speak of the angels as servants and as winds. And now, by contrast, we come in verses 8 and 9 to a quotation from Psalm 45, that emphasize that the Son is addressed as God, by God, that his throne is eternal, that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and that he has companions, four themes here. He is God, he is king forever, he is just, he has companions. 10 minutes, four themes, can we do it? We can at least taste it a little bit. And by the way, just let me point out that it's not just that the author is heaping up the texts that focus on the Son 
as superior to the angels. He's even heaping up the words. If these three belong together, as I contend they do, since in the Greek they're linked with that little connecting, con uh, uh, the conjunctions, the connecting conjunctions, men and that, on the one hand, the angels, verse 7. On the other hand, about the sun, God says, and then the Psalm 45 passage linked to 102. The quote about the angels in Greek is 12 words. The two quotes about the sun come to 84 words. That's seven times as many words about the sun, just in this little section of these three quotations. So he's, he's what a skilled orator. <laughs> I mean, the Holy Spirit's working, obviously, here, but uh, he's using this man's ability with the language to emphasize the greatness of the sun. So the sun, verse, verses 8 and 9 from Psalm 45, beginning at verse 6, he's quoting from that, the psalm at that point, and he wants to emphasize several things. Preeminently, the greatness of the sun is an absolute king and monarch. And kingship make, makes a lot of people nervous these days. Uh, we see tyrants across the world, whether they claim the name king or not, they still act as tyrants. And we are inclined, not only because we've read history and we know the abuses that come from power, but because we are... Hey, many of us are Americans, and we're just a little suspicious of royalty in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we're tempted to ask, who has the right to call the shots in other people's lives? By what standard is he going to call that right? Both our cultural bias toward anti-authoritarian individualism and the record of history makes us suspicious. We may cite the famous statement by Lord Acton in the 19th century, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He went on to say, great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you super add the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. We know in history that at a certain crucial point, the nobles of England wanted to limit the power of the king and force the Magna Carta on him. We know that American uh, republic, Republican democracy, whatever representative democracy, is based on suspicion of absolute authority. Three branches of government supposedly keeping one another in check with balances. And frankly, in the church, um, Presbyterian form of government, which we believe is rooted in scripture, is designed in the wisdom of God to protect sheep from overbearing authority, from corrupt shepherds as well. But here, Hebrews says, there is one king who can be trusted to wield absolute authority. Jesus is that king. He is God. He can be trusted to rule our lives, our circumstances with absolute control. We confess that. When we suffer and don't understand the suffering, we may, in our hearts of hearts, doubt that. But if you're going through a time when you're wondering whether King Jesus is the king you can trust, you need to hear these two verses. This king is God. This king rules eternally. This king rules justly. And you are his companions. Well, he's God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Psalm 45 is a royal wedding psalm, the only 
psalm that is explicitly about a royal wedding. It extols, as we sang, the prowess of the king as a military leader, as a warrior, verses one through five, and then his integrity, his righteousness as a ruler, verses six through nine. And then it goes on to talk about the bride, about the queen, uh, her beauty and her blessedness as the mother of generations of rulers to come. At verse six, when the psalm segues from the king's warrior role to his judging and ruling role, the psalmist does something really daring. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In fact, it's so shocking that a number of commentators on the Old Testament feel there's got to be some more theologically acceptable way to render the syntax here. Maybe your throne is God. Or maybe this first verse that we have quoted here is addressed to God. And then the next verse, therefore God your God has anointed you, is addressed to the king, somehow to separate those two. Um, but at least from what I've been able to study, those who are working closely with the Hebrew syntax and the syntax of the Greek Septuagint say, no, actually the, the most natural reading is to say that this psalm is addressing a king, manifestly human, but addressing him as God. Shocking. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, now slow down and read this and ponder this and notice here a hint of the Trinity. Your throne, O God, is forever. You loved righteousness, therefore God your God anointed you. A divine king on the throne who is also anointed by God, the distinction between the persons of the Father and the Son. He's using this psalm very much the way that Jesus used Psalm 110, verse one. We're gonna to come to that in about, oh, four weeks or so. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus said, now is David talking about, who's he talking about? Messiah? David's son? Well then how can David call his son his Lord? Sons submit to fathers. But this psalm seems to be about someone who is over his ancestor, over his father, David. Uh, a hint of the Trinity. This king is God. Now, we may not appreciate how shocking that is. At least many of our contemporaries won't because uh, in, the, in the atmosphere around, at least in Western culture, there's this atmosphere of feeling that we're all a little piece of the divine. Uh, when I went to seminary in ancient times back in the 70s, I was one of the last classes that had Cornelius Van Til as our professor of apologetics. And he taught us to be rigorous in maintaining the creator-creature distinction. The creator must not be confused with the creature. In your day, Dr. Peter Jones, one of, used to teach New Testament for us, still teaches practical theology for us here, makes the same point when he's critiquing New Age spirituality, as, which he calls one-ism, trying to eliminate the boundary between the creator and the creature. So a lot of people might be more than comfortable being told that they are God, but Hebrew Christians would be shocked to hear human beings called God. We know that because Jesus' listeners during his earthly ministry, were shocked when they got the implications. He called God his father, making himself equal with God. That's blasphemy. Let's kill him. 
But you see, on Jesus' lips, it was true. The man who was truly a creature, conceived in the womb of Mary and born, who got tired, who faced hunger, who was crucified and buried, was also really God. Amazing. He is really God. He deserves our utter allegiance. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. And because he's God, of course, he is king forever. God, king, and king forever. Your throne is forever and ever. Late modern culture's assumption that everything that old, that's old is passé and everything that is new is cool uh, makes it pretty, again, hard for people to imagine that uh, a man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago is still the king to whom they're accountable. Uh, we assume that everything new is what's right. C.S. Lewis called this our chronological snobbery. Uh, we refuse to read old books, among other things. Uh, and we certainly assume that no king or kingdom could, could sustain the right to demand allegiance across the passing of generations and centuries. After all, times change. But Psalm 45 in Hebrews 1 says, there is a king whose throne is forever and ever into the age of the ages. It's eternal, not merely in the sense that it's the beginning of a dynasty that would go on, father to son, to son, to son, to son. No, no. This throne is occupied by one king who lives forever. And that's one of the big points throughout the book of Hebrews. It's one of the points that the preacher will draw from Psalm 110. God has addressed this king, who's also a priest, and said, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He holds his priesthood, Hebrews says, forever because he has an indestructible life. An indestructible life. He's risen from the dead. He rules at God's right hand. He is eternal. And he rules us. A king who is God. Who eternally, forever, occupies his throne. And he rules justly. He can be trusted. That would be frightening if we didn't have this affirmation of the psalm the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He can be trusted. With this king on the throne of the universe, we can rest easy that there are not going to be any backroom deals whereby the wealthy and the powerful grease political palms to get away with murder, while the weak and the poor wine for justice. No, in the end, this king will bring justice. Now, that makes people today nervous, too, I mean, to think about hating unrighteousness. Who are we to define unrighteousness? Who are we to judge? Everybody has their own standards. Well, fair enough. Who are you and I to judge? We have our own guilt. But this king has the right to judge, to distinguish what is righteous and what is wicked, unrighteous and to make those judgments. And not just about others elsewhere, but as Hebrews reminds us, his word searches our own hearts like a sharp double-edged sword. It pierces down deep 
and tries the thoughts and intents of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him we have to do. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews 4 before that. In fact, if this king were not also the priest in the order of Melchizedek, his reign, though it would be just, would be sheer terror for us because it would mean our incineration by his wrath, his just wrath. But he is a priest as well as a king. He is a priest who suffered for the wicked and cleanses our conscience through his blood. Protected from his wrath by his blood, surely our response needs to be, this king we will follow and pursue integrity, uprightness, righteousness, or as preacher, the preacher says in chapter 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord because of the assurance of his atoning work. Which brings us to the fourth point quickly here, companions. You see that at the end of verse 9. God, your God, anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Those who share things with you is the, the, the reference there uh, of the Greek term metachos. Uh, it's, it's a term that some people have interpreted in the context of the psalm to refer to other ancient Near Eastern kings. God's elevated the heir of David above other kings. And some have said that Hebrews is thinking of the angels as the companions of the one whom God has anointed. I would suggest that the key here is in chapter three, verse 14, where the author calls you and me the companions of the anointed one. Now the ESV renders it, we have come to share in Christ if we have if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. But if we were more wooden about it, we would say we have become the sharers with the Messiah or the sharers with Christ, the companions, because it's exactly the same term. Between our text and chapter three in the middle, in chapter two, he's talked about the fact that Christ has come to share in, the verb related to the noun, to share in our flesh and blood in order to atone for us. We are his companions. We join in the celebration that his anointing is the anointing of exultant joy. And because we are his companions, the angels who were described in Psalm 97 as his ministers, that's back in verse seven, in verse 14 are gonna be talked about as those who are sent to minister to us because we belong to Jesus. We are his companions, we benefit from his great work. So the preacher here will end this chapter. Are not the angels all ministering spirits, picking up the language of Psalm 97, sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Those who are the son's companions. No wonder the oil that sets this king apart in his anointing is an oil of celebration, of exuberant joy, not just for him, but for all of us whose lives depend on what he has done for us in making purification for sins, taking up his life again, 
and now ascending to the right hand of the Father and taking his throne. This eternal king reigns in utter righteousness forever and ever for the sake of those who seek and find refuge under his protective dominion. He is the God who is also human, king reigning forever in absolute justice and righteousness, and because of his atoning work, we benefit as his companions. If you're wondering whether there's a just and wise God on the throne, not that you would ever question that on this campus, but if in your heart of hearts there's something going on in your life that you're saying, what is going on here? Remember who he is. And though we may not pierce all the secrets of his wisdom in the way he leads our lives, we can trust him. We can trust him and he rules forever. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us such a great king. One who is very God of very gods. Very God. The one who has been anointed by you to be the redeemer of his people. The one who is zealous for righteousness, who hates wickedness, and yet loves those who have been stained by wickedness and has given himself for us on the cross. Father, thank you that you have made us Jesus, the Messiah's companions, by grace through faith. Move our hearts to bow before him in glad, ready obedience through the strength of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.